Perhaps that, uh, that last carol is not super familiar uh, to you, but if you've been coming to Grace Valley for a while, it's probably becoming more familiar. It happens to be my favorite Christmas carol, and I don't have a ton of push and pull with Mark on, on when he's making liturgies, but around Christmas time, I can usually squeeze that one in. I hope, I hope it's becoming a favorite of yours as well. Uh, and if you, if you are not familiar with what are called Christmas carols, you know, the, the traditional songs that are sung at, uh, around Christmas time, I do really encourage you to become familiar with them. I, I was kind of, uh, for a few years in my younger years, I was a little bit anti sort of Advent Christmassy, you know, I thought it was, why do we do this all the time? Uh, my wife loved Christmas, has always loved Christmas, and always made me listen to Christmas songs. And the more I listened to them, the more I discovered the incredibly rich theology that are, and, 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 and packaged poetically that are found in many of the Christmas carols that we sing. So I, I commend them to you. It's a great way to learn the theology of the Bible through uh, singing, memorizing, re-singing some of these Christmas carols that are very dear to many of us. Anyway, I'm going to read Scripture passage. I, I can't even remember what I told Kate uh, I wanted to read. Oh, good. That's what I told her. Uh, I'm going to read just two verses, actually, from the Gospel according to John. This is chapter 1 where we have been for the last several weeks together. I'm just going to read verses 14 and 15. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we have been spending weeks together making our way through uh, John chapter 1. And I think I've said this before. It may be, it's a little dangerous to, to say this, but it may be the most profound chapter of the whole Bible uh, in terms of what it expresses and what it teaches theologically. Uh, it is certainly uh, up there as one of the most profound chapters in the Bible and what it teaches about who Jesus is and what He came to do. And of course, we haven't been able to, to do uh, proper uh, diligence around the whole thing. We haven't been able to, to plumb the depths of all of it. So what we've been doing is, is we've been sort of isolating words and phrases and thinking through what those words and phrases teach. So, we've looked at the word word. Uh, we have looked at the words life and light, that Jesus came to bring life and light. We looked at these words receive and reject, because these are words that John says uh, the people did. They didn't receive Him. They, did, they rejected Him, or they didn't know Him. And we tried to understand what those mean. And then we, we saw last Sunday... Uh, that Jesus says, or that John says, that those who do receive Jesus have the right to become children of God. And we kind of unpacked what it means for us to be children of God. Well, we're going to do it one more time, okay? This, uh, this evening, what we're going to do is we are going to basically wrestle with and, and plumb the depths of, at least a little bit, uh, this phrase, the Word became flesh. And we'll also think a little bit what it means that 
He made his dwelling among us. We're going to kind of drill down on those words. What does it mean that Christmas is about the word becoming flesh? Well, the answer is absolutely outrageous because it means that God came into this world in human form. And that is an outrageous thing for us to believe. God became a man. Now, it's simple. God became a human being. That's, that's a simple concept, but that doesn't mean it's an easy concept. That doesn't mean it's something that we can wrap our minds around very easily. If you think about it, there are an awful lot of versions of Jesus out there. There are a lot of understandings of the incarnation out there. Let me just give you a couple to, to think about. First of all, there's the, uh, the Muslim Jesus Muslims believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus was a great prophet and he was a forerunner of the final prophet that is Muhammad. But Jesus is by no means the divine son of God. There's the, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus is uh, the incarnation of the archangel Michael. And he is actually a created being. He's, he's not eternal. He's not infinite. Anything like that. He's not divine. There's the Mormon Jesus, and the Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit child of God, who uh, was actually, who became a God and therefore was granted divinity. That's the Mormon Jesus. The Unitarian Universalist Jesus is a Jesus who is a very enlightened man, who understood spiritual things in a way that uh, other people didn't, and he points us to God and how to have a relationship with God. How many of you are familiar with Deepak Chopra? You heard that name, Deepak Chopra? People my age have, because he was really popular on Oprah. <laughs> she spent he spent time on Oprah. He's, a, he's kind of a new age theorist. Uh, he taught at Harvard University for a while, but then, you know, he writes some popular books and he ends up on the talk, uh, talk show circuit. Anyway, he represents sort of the, the new age understanding of Jesus, which is that Jesus is, or Christ, is a state of consciousness that all of us can achieve. And then, of course, there's the Scientology Jesus, the Jesus of Scientology. That's the religion of Tom Cruise, in case anybody's wondering why I would talk about Scientology. Uh, that says that Jesus is actually an implant to a Thetan being some one million years ago. And if you want to know what on earth I mean by that, I don't even know. I'll be honest with you. That one I just Wikipedia'd. I think it's accurate though. I think it's accurate. The point is this. There's a lot of different versions of Jesus out there. People know there was something about him. Something special about him. He had an effect on history in such a way that, that people understand he's got to be dealt with. He's got to be figured out. He's got to be understood. There's all kinds of theories about who this Jesus is. What's the Bible's theory about who Jesus is? Simply this, the second person of the Trinity. The Almighty God who created the universe who has never not existed who is eternal, who has no beginning, who has no end, who is all-powerful, who is beyond Captain Marvel in the scope of his power because there is nothing that can, can even come close to touching his power. 
that this God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. In other words, God took on human nature. And we say, yeah, hmm, that's incredible. But, but think about this, guys. Think about this. This means that the almighty power of this transcendent God existed in a human arm. That the infinite love of an infinite God beat in a human heart. That the infinite wisdom, the sum total of all wisdom and beyond all wisdom spoke from human lips. And that the infinitely gracious mercy of God were found in human hands. Guys, Jesus is God wrapped in human skin. And that is wild. That is outrageous. That is what John believes. Now, maybe somebody says, yeah, well, of course John believed that because John was an ancient guy. He's from 2,000 years ago, pre-scientific era, didn't quite understand how the world works, and so people created gods and developed gods as a way of kind of explaining the unknown and the things that they don't understand. He couldn't help but believe in, in a god, and this is sort of the god that the Jews came up with. But you know what? The fact is that this idea that God could become a human being was just as outrageous to John in his day as it is to you and me in our day. And there's two reasons. Well, there's more, but I'm only going to give you two. First of all, John was a Jew. And the Jewish people had been taught since God entered a relationship with the Jewish people many, many centuries ago. You can read about it in the early chapters of the book of Genesis where God met Abraham and, and developed a relationship with him and revealed himself to Abraham. And then from Abraham, the Jewish people uh, uh, grew, okay? From the very, very beginning, they were taught by God himself that he is so transcendent that he, he is a spirit and simply cannot ever be contained by any physical being. Not by a person, not by a thing, an inanimate object. You maybe remember, if you know your Bible stories from the olden days, in Exodus, uh, we read about the Israelites getting freed from Egypt in a very dramatic way. And God, uh, God goes up on the mountain with Moses as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments. And what do the people do? They want to see God, so they make a golden calf. And they get in really, really big trouble for making a golden calf because God is a spirit and no thing on this earth could ever represent God. 
And here, John, who has many centuries later grown up in a culture that for thousands of years has been told, God does not take a physical form, God is transcendent, God is beyond anything we could see with our physical eyes, God is, is, is impossible to comprehend with our, with our, 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 our physical sort of uh, faculties, John is saying that God, in a sense, has broken his own rule. And he has showed up in the flesh, shown up in the flesh. John would not have just believed that, okay? He would not have just said, as a good uh, Jew living in that time, that, oh, okay, well, God has obviously decided to change everything that uh, we kind of thought he was doing according to the Old Testament scriptures that I've been reading and memorizing my whole life. That's the first reason. The second reason is because John was Jesus' closest friend. He was his, literally, his bosom buddy. You know, he's the one who reclined on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. He's the one that that he himself says was, I was the one who was known as his beloved. He spent more time with Jesus probably than any of the other disciples. Now, if you know anything about being in friendship with people, it's that the longer you spend time with them, the more you discover about them. The more you learn about them. The more you find out how, how awesome they are not the more you realize that they have habits that are super irritating, annoying. The more you realize that they are kind of short-tempered or more you realize that they're kind of fearful and timid and they're always anxious. The more you realize all kinds of, of, of failings about them, shortcomings about them. When I meet with people who have, uh, who have asked me to marry them, one of the first questions I ask them is, how long have you known each other? And I always say to people, don't ever marry someone that you haven't known for at least a year because you can hide what a person is like for almost a year, but it's pretty tough to hide what you're really like from another person for a whole year. And so John knew who Jesus was intimately, and nowhere do we ever get a whiff that John knew that Jesus was a fraud that he wasn't who he said he was, that he wasn't perfect in every way. In fact, John was so convinced he never wavered to the point that he actually gave up his life. He was exiled for much of his adult life to the island of Patmos where he died in isolation. And never once did he turn his back on his Savior. So either Jesus is the Son of God or he's not. But don't say, well, John was just kind of a product of his time. He fell for it. Just doesn't add up. John is telling us the Word became flesh. That is, God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ and therefore we had one human being who has ever lived that was 100% God and 100% human at the same time. And you say, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense. How can a person be 200% of anything? And my answer to you is, I don't know. I don't know. How can light be a particle and a wave? We don't know the answer to that one either. Doesn't mean it's not true. Remember, mystery, friends, is not the absence of truth. It is the presence 
of more truth than we can comprehend. Now, that's what it means. That's what Christmas means. Christmas means that God punched a hole in the roof of the world and climbed into this physical place and dwelt among us. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us now? That's what it meant then. What does it mean for us now? Well, the second phrase helps us with this. It says that he made his dwelling among us. Literally, what it's saying is is that Jesus tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Now, that word tabernacle is from the Old Testament. So, when you go back to the Old Testament, again, in Exodus, you discover that the tabernacle was a house. It was a tent. Just like the Israelites who all were traveling from Egypt to Canaan, you know, and they're going through the desert. You know, your kids, you go camping and you pitch a tent. I know nobody pitches a tent anymore. We all get trailers. But there was a time when people went camping and they pitched tents. And that was your place of of dwelling while you stayed on the campsite. Well, the Israelites, they would set up their tents and they set up a particular tent for God because that tent, that tabernacle, represented God's presence among his people. And what John is saying is, is that in Jesus Christ, in the coming of Jesus Christ, we have God's presence among his people. Not his presence in a building or an inanimate object or anything like that. No, no, no. We have God's presence in a person. And this is what that means. It means that God gets you. This is one of the radically unique things that the Christian faith teaches that that no other religion would even try to teach, frankly. It's that God understands you. God understands your experiences, your life. Why? Because he's been in this world and lived this life. We read from Isaiah chapter 9. It says in verse 6, it calls God wonderful counselor. Why would it call God wonderful counselor? We all know that the best counselors are the counselors who can empathize with their counselee. They they understand the counselee. Sometimes it, it's even beneficial when, when the counselor has been through similar circumstances that the counselee has been through. The whole AA program is set up on that. You get a sponsor who you talk to because they understand what this addiction is like and they understand what it means to resist and try to live a sober life. And so you call your sponsor in order There we go. Barely skipped a beat. And so, a counselor, the, the, the counselee can talk to their AA sponsor because the AA sponsor understands where they've been through. Well, Jesus is the wonderful counselor because the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He's been hungry. He knows hunger. He knows loneliness. He knows homelessness. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He understands rejection. He knows what betrayal feels like. He's experienced torture. He's suffered injustice, even abuse. He knows it all. 
And so that means if you've been betrayed, if you put your trust in someone that you thought would never, ever, ever break your heart and you find yourself heartbroken and you're like, I don't know what to do, so has he. If you find yourself unsuccessful by worldly standards, you're, you're not as successful as your friends, you didn't get into the same schools, you didn't get the same degree, you didn't get the same kind of job, you're not making the same kind of money and you feel like a failure, you don't compare to them, you don't compare to your family, you don't compare to anybody, you think you're a bum and a failure, so is he. You feel lonely, you feel completely misunderstood, people don't get you. Nobody ever understood Jesus. His own family thought he was nuts. You face death. You're facing the prospect of your own mortality. For some of us, that's a very live thing because of our age or because of our health circumstances or anything like that. Well, he did too. He faced death. He went right through it. Meaning, you can go to him and be certain that he gets you. He gets what you're going through. He is understanding. Yes, he is the high and lofty one. He is the one who is surrounded by the angels and in glory for, for, for all eternity being praised. The six-winged seraph with sleepless eye who cried out, holy, holy, holy. We're crying out to him. Yes, that's who he is. But he's also the one who when you cut him, he bled. When he fell, he skinned his knee. When his friends turned his back on him, his heart was absolutely broken in two. He knows exactly what it means to be human and frail. And you may say, well, here's the problem. I've had problems, I've had troubles, I've had heartache, and I have prayed, I have poured out my heart to him, and it feels like he's not listening to me. It feels like I'm being denied. It feels like I'm being abandoned. You know what? He knows that too. Because on the cross, he was denied probably the most biggest, most biggest prayer ever prayed. In the garden, he said, Lord, if it's your will, if, if, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And his father said no. And when he, didn't, when he died, he was abandoned. He gets you. Christianity is a God who gets you, who empathizes with you, who understands you. And one more thing. Because the Word became flesh, it means the real can become the ideal. Now, that may sound really weird to you, but let me try to say this quickly. The Greeks, they believed that there was an ideal realm and a real realm. The ideal realm was the spiritual realm. It was up there. And the, the real realm was the physical realm. That's down here, what you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands and all that kind of stuff. Okay? Now, to the Greeks, the good place was the spiritual realm. That was where purity and glory and beauty existed. Here in the real world, that's where evil happened and that's where decay happened. This place sucked. This place was bad. But at Christmas time, you see, the ideal actually became real because God did in the person of Jesus. He punched a hole through this concrete slab between the ideal and the real, and he came and invaded this broken world. He broke through. 
but he did it so that the real could become the ideal. There's an old 17th century book, 16th century book called Don Quixote, written by Michael Cervantes. In 1975-ish or so, there was a, a Broadway musical based on it called Man of La Mancha. And it's about this character, Don Quixote. And he's nuts. He's gone insane. He thinks that he's a great knight, but he's not. But he goes around doing all these acts of valor because he's insane. And, and he, he lives in this dream world that doesn't really exist, but he, he behaves as though he is this great knight doing all these acts of valor. And he comes to an inn. And at that inn, he meets a prostitute named Aldonza. But he treats her like she's royalty. He calls her Dulcinea. And he tells her how beautiful she is. And he sings love songs to her. And he treats her with love and respect. And at first, she hates it. It drives her nuts. She's angry with him and annoyed with him. Played by Sophia Loren in the movie, by the way, very, very well. Although she can't sing. But he treats her with tenderness and respect the whole way through. And she's confused by it. And she hates it. But by the end of the play... She's changed. She accepts the name Dulcinea. And her self-worth is built up. And, and the cynicism about life is gone. Because she starts to see herself the way he saw her. Now the point is, Don Quixote was mad. Right? And it took his madness to see this prostitute as, as royalty and to treat her that way. He refused to see the real that was right in front of his face, in front of him. He saw what she should be, not what she was. He lived in the world of the ideal because he was insane. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, guys, you don't have to choose. You live in the real but you've been touched by the ideal. Jesus has invaded this world, and if he's invaded your life, then you face the real through the lens of the ideal. Christ treats you as royalty. It does not matter what you have done. It does not matter your record. It does not matter your history. If you receive him and believe in his name, you are royalty. And he sees you as such. Clothed in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with men. You hear that? Pleased, no, pleased as man. With men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Amen. Pray with me, Father. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the hope of Christmas. As the darkness falls outside these walls, we choose to live in the light of the incarnation of Jesus. We praise you, Jesus, for being willing to come so low to be among us and to change us and to make us like you. Do it, we pray, for your glory. Amen.